Hello and welcome to the Verblio Show. This is the podcast for digital agencies and digital marketers brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. I'm your host, Steve Pakras, and I am Verblio CEO. Today I'm talking with Neil Robertson, co-founder and CEO of Influence.co, a professional networking platform connecting influencers, creators, and businesses. And it's only the most recent of Neil's 10 plus startup ventures. Neil's last two major companies live at the intersection of the future of marketing and the future of the gig economy, two of my favorite topics. We talked about everything from the next evolution of advertising to top lessons for every entrepreneur. Neil and I spoke on September 9th, 2020. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Neil Robertson, welcome to the Verblio Show. It's great to have you. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. We've known each other for about 10 years now. And we're one, you were one of the first people I met when I moved out here. And I reached out because you were at the center of crowdsourcing and, uh, and the future of marketing, which is a place that I like to uh, also live. And so I'm really excited to ask you a bunch of these questions today. Yeah, I'm excited to answer them. Um, I'd love your opinion if you think that crowdsourcing is even a thing anymore like does anybody use that word um you know or has it morphed into something else it is a word that has been so uh it is so tarnished by what happened to the entire concept of marketplace businesses that i think we need to reinvent it and so uh marketplace businesses is where i currently use what do you currently use i live in a corner of the world which people are calling the creator economy or the passion economy um I think, you know, this uh, woman, Lee Jin, who used to work at Andreessen Horowitz and has got her own fund now and is prolific on Twitter, kind of coined the phrase uh, in an essay that she wrote on Andreessen's blog. And I think it's nice and expansive because, you know, part of my history was doing a crowdsourced marketplace for AdWords experts. And uh, I know some people are very passionate about AdWords. That's something they want to spend their life doing. Some people like being in the car driving around all day. Um, so I like the passion economy because, um, who, who am I to say what, what uh, interests people as long as they can make money doing it in the way they want, it's great. I like the concept of the passion economy. I've got a bad feeling it's not going to catch. And I think the reason for that is when, when these words, when you're trying to like redefine an entire industry, you either come from like the value that you're delivering to the end client that's looking at it or what you're doing for the supply of labor. And I think this is a situation where it's going to take off if you explain to companies why this is better for them versus why it helps uh, the individual who's doing the work. Yeah, that's very true. So um, to be fair, crowdsourcing was a very business oriented term. We both used it in the respective businesses we had to explain a value proposition of collective knowledge, um, essentially um, commoditized. I don't think that's the right way to say it, but like, you know, lots of people that you don't have to pay for, um, you know, as if you hire them all. I think the passion economy, rightly so, is the inverse of that, right? It's maybe um, focusing on the person doing the work themselves. But what's interesting is I think that's a little bit also of what has happened in the industry, that the people that are behind the industry have started looking a little bit from one side of the marketplace to the other side of the marketplace. And that's a very good distinction between my foray into crowdsourcing with the company Trada and how we designed our business and what we're doing at my company Influence.co now, which we'll talk about a little bit perhaps, um, where we went from looking at the businesses in Trada and now we're very much focused on the influencers and creators as our customer. Um, so yeah, um, good, good point though, right? If I'm a marketer, I'm not looking for something in the passion economy, I'm looking for something that helps me. But I think people that believe there's a passion economy there are gonna start setting themselves up 
as small businesses that can provide services to marketers um, because the infrastructure for the passion economy allows them to work in a different way than they could before. Exactly. I think we're on the same page there. And I think the other transition that you're talking about when you talk about passion is we're now talking about skilled labor. When the beginning days was all about commoditized kind of like humans as widgets, which I think we're all dying to move away from and think of what's the economy of the future. So if we can bring the word skilled labor in there, if, uh, if anyone's listening and can come up with that word, you're yeah. very willing to do so. It's, um, it's funny. I'm, um, I'm fortunate to be in this um, private Slack group that actually was started by this, this uh, woman, Lee Jin, of all these people that are in the creator of Passion Economy, CEOs and product people. And there's a bunch of debates going on. And one of the debates is like, what's the right word? Do you call people influencers? Do you call them creators? Do you call them gig workers, you know, et cetera? Um, and uh, you're right, as, as work has gone, you know, towards skill work as opposed to commoditized labor, um, no one has a really great, great moniker for it yet. Um, it, it's funny, I, I don't know if you know this, but I actually, um, TEDx started in Boulder maybe 10 years ago. I think Andrew Hyde put in the first TEDx at Chautauqua. And I was the first speaker at the first TEDx. And the presentation that I gave was um, the future of work, um, a return to Taylorism. And I don't know if you know much about Frederick Winslow Taylor, um, no. who was, um, well, I, I will tell you this because I think it's fascinating because it is essentially playing itself out. Um, Bethlehem Steel, at the end of the Spanish War, had a ton of steel sitting on the ground that they didn't know what to do with. And they couldn't like figure out how to get their workers to cost effectively put it all in rail cars and ship it away. And so they hired this guy, Frederick Winslow Taylor, who came in with this whole new concept of managing people, which was based on paying them for the work that they did. And he would discretize the amount of, it's called pig iron, the amount of pig iron that they could lift per day onto a railway car. And he pays them in units of, of weight, essentially. And through this system um, was able to like cost effectively get all the iron onto the railway cars and like keep um, Bethlehem steel from going out of business. The, the concept caught on and it was called Taylorism and it was essentially the first approach to discretizing work and paying people on units of work. Some interesting things about Frederick Winslow Taylor, um, there's a man that worked for Frederick Winslow Taylor whose name was Henry Gant. You will know Henry Gant because of the Gant chart and they actually um, invented the Gantt chart as part of this. Uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor then went on to create something called um, Oh, uh, I'm forgetting names, like scientific business. And it was a whole philosophy about basically how to manage teams of people based on discretizing units of work. That book became very famous and became the underpinning of, of Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School was founded to teach the principles of that book. Um, so this single person had this incredible effect on business as we know it now. But the sad part of the story is after all this stuff happened to him and he was sort of put up on a pedestal, it turned out that he had completely and utterly fudged all of his books. He was essentially lying about the actualities of all of it, even though people really believed in theory. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything about Harvard um, having poor <laughs> credentials. Uh, as an MIT man, I have to take my digs at Harvard whenever I can. But um, uh, like no one knows about Frederick Winslow Taylor and this, this is like the end of the 1800s, this very first approach to distressing work and how Gantt worked with them. And one of the things I said at the TEDx conference was, you know, I said in 20 years, a quarter of everybody in the audience will be doing part of their work in some kind of a labor marketplace. And I just saw a statistic not very long ago where something like 
five or seven percent of the U.S. economy works in gig work or discretized work. And so um, it just was interesting. Like things always take a lot longer than you think they're gonna. But even you know, ten years ago, there was early rumblings that people's jobs going to be put apart. And I think originally we thought businesses were gonna like pull it back together they wanted. Now I think the power is shifting to the individual to kind of put their work together in a kind of a multi-hyphenate bits and pieces way that they want to enable the lifestyle they want. So um, an interesting past, and past, present and future I think that we're living in here. Let's keep riffing on the gig economy and some of your learning. So as someone who's thought a lot about the gig economy uh, beyond taxis, what type of industries is the gig economy well suited for? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how you define the gig economy, right? I mean, I think five or 10 years ago, the gig economy would, and I would love your definition of this, would maybe be defined as um, small chunks of, of work or activity, whether it's writing a blog post, 250 word blog post for someone, or uh, taking someone from point A to point B in a car, or in our world, working on um, uh, an AdWords campaign um that you that existed that, that had a marketplace be the supplier of those jobs so you could sort of like pastiche together a bunch of jo jobs to make enough income to um to do that for a living um and really it was about flexibility of of work and quality of work getting you access to more jobs and so all those original companies like elance and odesk which merged together and became upwork and fiverr and things like that kind of came out of that i feel like um other than some kinds of jobs like being an Uber driver, um, which which I think many Uber drivers just treat it like an eight hour, 10 hour shift job anyway. I think the, um, the, the trend that I've seen is that people, there's a bit of like fatigue that you get from like always trying to get new gigs. It's kind of like, you know, being a consultant or being an agency constantly trying to find new customers. And so I think those marketplaces have tended to gravitate towards bigger, longer contracts for things, um, more stability for the worker, more consistency with the business user. Um, and, you know, we even see that in the influencer marketing space where most of the influencer marketing work of the last, you know, 10 years, depending on how far back you think you want to count influencer marketing with bloggers was very like project-based. Hey, I need you to do a specific blog post about this hotel. And now it's moving um, <clears throat> towards brand ambassadors, longer term engagements, just because like the spin up costs and spin down costs with human beings, no matter how great they are is expensive. Like it takes a lot of effort to understand someone, their motivations, their communication style. And if you're doing that with 10 or 20 or 30 people at a time, that's very tricky. So um, I, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I witnessed that even like Uber drivers used to be like on Uber and on Lyft and on something else. And they would be like, have multiple phones bouncing back and forth. And it's, I pretty much see that people have just sort of picked their market now. Like, I think there's a, there's probably an amount of like, they've been around long enough. The work has been consistent enough that I feel like I'm not going to hedge my bets anymore. Um, you know, and there's some scale that people have achieved in those marketplaces, but I, I think the trend has been towards um, less, um, less discretization, more, bigger projects, longer term relationships, but still a sense that you can come and go as you please and that you're getting valued based on your output, not based on um, an hourly rate. Or there's some kicker in there, whether it's a tip or a delivery fee or something that values your performance, not just your presence. Right, it, basically there were two extremes of kind of gig slash contract work. There was like the commoditized kind of uh, um, 
Uber world. And then there was like Upwork or consulting projects where you could find somebody who's super high skilled and it was a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And the type of work that I think both of us are doing is like, how do you find that skilled work in the middle where you can deliver a higher end service, deliver an ongoing relationship, you're bringing enough work opportunity for that pool of skilled labor. Um, and that you can also add value by really focusing on one work type. So my, my view is that it's really coming from those extremes of the commodity into the super professional kind of consultant types towards a mill group that focuses on work types. Cool, so let's, uh, let's talk a little more about influence.co and some of the, uh, what was the model that you came up with to, uh, to bring influencer marketing to the next level and how did you leverage some of your marketplace experience to get there? Sure, so uh, I had built a business beforehand, which is sort of how, how we met a company called Trata that was a marketplace where on one side we had small and medium-sized businesses that wanted to do um, advertising, paid, you know, Google AdWords, we did a little bit of Facebook work. And on the other side, we had a bunch of AdWords and Facebook ad professionals. Uh, we created a model where you didn't have to sort of pick one winner or one person to do the work like you would on Upwork or Fiverr, but where we uh, harnessed the collective intelligence, hence crowdsourcing of five or six people, and we paid them based on how well they performed for you. Um, and, you know, we gave that business a great, a great go. We spent six years at it. Uh, Google was an investor. It was the only AdWords business that they ever invested in. Um, and in the end, the business ended up being not successful. And the reason that it wasn't successful, this is one of these things where it wasn't successful because it was a venture-backed business, not because it was any kind of business that could have ended up in any place. But venture-backed businesses need a certain um, scale to them to get the plane off the ground and to keep getting investment. And what we really encountered was on sort of unknowingly, we put ourselves in the middle of the relationship between the business and the uh, AdWords expert. And we not only put ourselves in the, in the middle in terms of the service provider, but also in terms of the transaction. And so money would flow from the business and we would intermediate it and we would sort of like figure out who got paid what, we would take our own rake out of that and then we would push money to um, the, the AdWords experts. Um, what I learned in that experience was that when you put yourself in the middle, you end up being an agency whether you like it or not. There's few marketplaces that um, you have to have very fungible transactions, you have to have very unsubjective results like on eBay you buy something or you don't buy something maybe like one out of a thousand people complain that it's not the thing they bought or it wasn't the quality they thought it was and there's a remediation system but generally speaking like things don't go that wrong other than like packages not arriving um and you know that's why something like that works um you know with us when like advertising is very subjective even performance-based advertising and so when the customer was unhappy they would call us when the AdWords expert wasn't happy they would call us and so the model just ended up being what I would call a technology enabled services business, which ends up being a really high margin agency, which as a standalone business is great. Like every agency would love to have 40% margins. Um, but as a venture backed business, you end up not looking like a technology enabled services business. You end up looking like a very low margin SaaS business. So <laughs> if you're a SaaS company that has 40% margins, you should have 80 or 85% margins. And so you just can't get continual funding for that model. So we were just stuck in the middle and the other thing about VCs is they are not in the business of saving every business. They're in the business of optimizing their energy around winners. 
And so if you have a business, like it wasn't a bad business, it was one that we could have you know, made into a 10 or $20 million a year business. Um, but there's just not a lot of interest, generally speaking, from investors to put the energy into that because they can put, be putting the energy into a rocket ship, you know, SaaS business with 95% margins and, you know, triple, 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 double, double growth. Um, and so you just shut the businesses down. Sounds silly to do after putting in $17 million to just wind it down, but that's actually the way that the financial, um, the math works out for investors. It's not worth their time. When we started Influence.co, we saw a bunch of the early players, this is about four, four and a half years ago, early players in the influencer marketing space rushing into the space and, and building the same model that we had at Trata. Business wanting to do influencer marketing on one side, you work with five or 10 influencers to produce content for you on the other side. They put themselves in the middle, they take some percentage of spend or transaction fee, whatever the case may be. We knew that the space was going to be big, but that we, we didn't want to participate in that model. So we stepped back and we said, what? Like what, what are big trends that are happening here that we think are interesting? And, and what we really believe was choosing to be an influencer or a creator was, this, was going to be the same thing as choosing a profession at some point in time. We, it wasn't the case four years ago. I think now it's beginning to be the case. But if you look at the whole industry as a whole new profession that sort of emerged out of nowhere, um, you go, okay, great. Well, what business models have done well by catering to a profession and moving them online, giving them a home. There's actually a lot of um, sites that are very successful, worth a ton of money, that have done this around specific verticals. So um, your audience might know Dribble in the graphic design space um, or Behance, which is part of Adobe. Um, they um, might know Stack Overflow for software developers. They might know House for interior design professionals or uh, building connected for um, building professionals like construction professionals, angel lists for people that are, um, you know, investors and angels and startup folks. There's lots and lots of these verticalized businesses that essentially um, are what we call vertical professional communities. And they essentially build a platform that usually integrates content community and commerce in some shape or form. That is the place that professionals in that industry hang out, share content, collaborate, whatever the case may be. Turns out that those businesses are extremely valuable, right? I mean, House is a $4 billion business. Stack Overflow is worth $1 to $2 billion. Behance got sold to Adobe for $150 million very early on. Dribble is worth probably half a billion dollars now. Um, these are all massive businesses and they all sit, you know, the mother of all vertical professional communities is LinkedIn, right? We all know LinkedIn. And so all these things are just sort of like specialized LinkedIn's. So we thought it would be really smart to go build that for the influencer and creator world. I mean, influencers and creators, first of all, they're young. They don't really use LinkedIn. Their job resume doesn't fit into LinkedIn because it's a bunch of visuals of what work they've done, what branded content they've created. It was just sort of a generational moment where we thought like, wow, this is a really interesting, valuable professional that's upending media and commerce. It's a global in nature. It's a choice that people want to make. Um, and you know, you don't have a lot of chances to go build one of these things. They don't pop up very often. And so we're like, let's go do that. The, the challenge of that business, because every business has its opportunities and challenges is um, you can stay out of the becoming an agency, you know, problem. Um, but you have to play a longer game because you have to design a system that eventually gets everybody to sign up for it. Because it doesn't work if you have 2% of the influencers, you have to have all the influencers. And so, to do that, you can't buy your way to getting everybody to sign up. So you have to 
think about how to create organic strategies. And so we developed a whole bunch of um, organic and SEO strategies very early on that gave people free tools that they then, you know, um, put their own profiles into, and then we worked very hard um, to deliver, to create a whole bunch of content out of that, that Google liked, that started to capture people's, people who were searching on Google for the influencer marketing industry, filter them into the community and keep that flywheel going. Fast forward now, we have a 100% organically grown community with um, almost 250,000 members in it, 60,000 businesses, the rest are influencers and individuals, um, and we don't spend any money on acquiring our customers. So um, it's just a very, and it, and it works very similarly to LinkedIn. People create professional profiles, they follow each other, they, you know, um, businesses can put up job postings if they're trying to find influencers to work with. We stay out of the middle of that, you know, they can, you know, most of it's free, but they can pay if they want kind of us to market that to our community. It's all the things that you know and love on uh, LinkedIn. Um, but we are never in the middle. We're never in the middle of the transaction. We don't move money around. And so it's a complete tech scale business that we can build. You know, we hope to build it to you know, a few million, if not 10 million members over the next few years. Um, and when we add, you know, we have something like 560 live campaigns running in the system, businesses that are trying to find influencers. I think that's vastly bigger than any other influencer marketing company. Uh, we have zero people that do customer onboarding, right? Just, um, it's just a very different thing, right? So the other companies in the space, they go get 10 new customers. They're probably great customers, but they got to go hire the account manager and another customer success person, et cetera. Um, and that's just not the business that we wanted to run. We wanted to try to build something, but, but you can't hand Google you know, a million pages and be like, please index these and put them all number one. You have to be very slow and methodical about it. So it took us three years of developing this SEO strategy and going through all sorts of Google updates and changes and, you know, trying to be very good SEO citizens to get to a point where we have a pretty defensible mode. Um, that's, if someone decided to come compete with us tomorrow, they just couldn't. It would take them a couple of years to earn their way into it. You, uh, what you've learned from working at Trata and building a company that focused on the space and the tech-enabled services is not to do the tech-enabled service-style business, and then all of the next round of competitors were following your previous lead, and you've learned not to do that anymore. Yes, that is right. It's to think of a model that you that's got a lot of scalability to it, that has a high highly scalable monetization model, but go to your investors and say, hey we need two years where you're not going to make any money. We're going to pass up all these opportunities. Brands are going to come knocking at our door and say they want to spend $100,000 with us and we're going to just refer them to other people. It's a very hard thing to do as a young company, no matter how much money you have in the bank. And we didn't have much, but my team is very sophisticated. We'd be around the block and we just put the blinders on. And now four years later, we're really starting to reap the rewards of that. What does a campaign look like when someone, when a client comes to your site, uh, how are they engaging with you and what do they get out of it? I think whenever new marketing channels arrive. There are always a bunch of companies that are very ahead of the curve, come out and essentially saturate the channel and build big notable businesses, usually something that's consumer oriented that a lot of people hear about. And it's, a, it's kind of the way that channels get anointed as valid. And so I'll give you an example. When People started with retargeting because you know there wasn't always retargeting. That was something that's only been around for 10 or 15 years. Bonobos came out of the gates and Nasty Gal came out of the gates and they just bought all the inventory. I don't know if you remember, you know, if you ever touched the Bonobo site in the early days, like it was the first time that I was like, oh wow, 
these bonobo ads are following me everywhere. I wonder how that's happening. And Nasty Gal built their business off the same thing. So sort of in, you know, interweaving, um, you know, social media advertising and retargeting. And they became very successful because of it. Prices were very cheap at that point in time. So they could go and build, extract value out of that channel in a way that you couldn't now because the prices are much more expensive. And so everybody sees those companies be successful and go, okay, cool, I wanna come and do that. So a lot of people follow that lead and they rush in. In the early days of influencer marketing, there's lots of companies that crushed it. So Frank's Body Scrub is a very famous example, a company out of Melbourne that like, it's like a coffee scrub and they got all these like, you know, um, uh, you know, beautiful people in Australia to put this like coffee on their face, like basically like be like nude, put the, this coffee grounds on their face and it like blew up online. They built a $30 million business out of it, shreds with like an early protein powder, like work with influencers really early on. Um, you know, um, uh, Hello Smile, just like a lot of people that just figured out the visual nature of influencer marketing very early on. And so people encounter these things because they're on social media. So everybody thinks, oh, influencer marketing must be easy. And so they just started spending money. And so like, I would think like the last, the first three years of influencer marketing was just basically about a bunch of brands rushing in and just starting to spend money. And then influencers being on the receiving end and being like, we'll take your money. And just really not thinking very deeply about like who or what, where you're trying to get out of it, et cetera. That was what characterized the, um, the, the industry for the last few years. Um, more recently, people have become more sophisticated, partially because the prices have been a little bit inflated. They're more thoughtful about direct response in this kind of pandemic environment, et cetera. Our campaign, to answer your question, is pretty free form. We allow people to come in and essentially describe how they wanna work with influencers, what the value exchange is, do a post, do a story, do three stories, become a brand ambassador, you know, get affiliate payments, whatever it is that you want to do um, and who they're looking for, category, age, demographics, et cetera. We just, and sort of a brief about the product and we put that into the, into the community and let the influencers self-select into the campaigns that interest them. What's important about that, though, is the reason that that works well is that we have all this predicate of people in the community. So people have come in, they've built up their profiles. So one of the big problems that brands had early on in influencer marketing is it's a bunch of smaller brands that nobody knows about. And like, they're like reaching out to these influencers and these influencers are like, who are you? Like, who are you? Who have you worked with? Is it worth my time and energy? And so... We gave brands the ability to kind of create a professional looking business presence as a mechanism for reaching out to someone. It's sort of like if you're on LinkedIn, if you go on there and like you have no company page and you're just like emailing people like, hey, you're a job engineer. I'd love you to come work for my startup. And they're like, well, let me go look on your profile. What's your company? Go to the company page. And there's nothing there. You're like, maybe not. Right. So we just created a there. And um, that, so we started getting a huge amount of businesses joining the platform because that sort of piece of like credibility got the much better response rates from influencers. And we gave them this free tool to basically say, describe who you want. And then it became clear that like people didn't want to do the outbound work. They just wanted influencers to come to them. And that's when we started layering our layering in our paid products, which allow allows us, our market, to like do the work for you. So that's, that's what a campaign is. It's just a description of what you want to try to accomplish. And we see everything from... 20, you know, post post on your feed to uh, put a link in your link tree for affiliate stuff now to we just want customer focus groups to video reviews. I mean, it's amazing the ways that people are thinking about influencers and their knowledge, their content production skills and their audience as something beneficial to their business. Um, and we're going to keep it pretty open because it allows us to be fluid with whatever's happening in the industry. A way to think about the power of influencers, this is actually explained to me by a young person that works with us, is it is completely and utterly unrealistic for most brands in the world to 
think about and pay for the production of contextualizing their brand into tens or hundreds of different situations. The old school model is you go to the mall, and the Tommy Hilfiger ad is the same in the mall here as it is in Texas, as it is in New York, as it is on you know, the highway. That's not how people want to consume advertising anymore. People want to consume Tommy Hilfiger based on like the, you know, the, you know, black streetwear girl that like really understands like how to like put it in her context and then someone else who maybe is on vacationing uh, versus someone else who's maybe like wearing it in a sports setting versus someone else who's like trying to do like something just casual versus like, you know, all these like really like interesting different lifestyles that people are so interested and exposed to that, you know, maybe isn't something that you get so much access to all across the map. You see this like incredible ad content being created. I think like that's just a way to really think about the power of influencer marketing sort of independent of access to audiences or their performance of it. A whole it's a generationally new way about thinking about what ads are. Like I saw, I saw an ad for someone who took a baby stroller and they took it on vacation with them to like Germany and they took this baby stroller like on a hike up this like small like mountain range and they took pictures of the baby stroller overlooking like Neuschwanstein or some other like massive German castle and I was like they're like that was just one ad for that stroller like that stroller company is never gonna send a ten thousand dollar a day crew to Germany to go take that one shot but they can hire 20 different influencers to do crazy amounts of stuff like that and I'm much more leaning into that ad than I am into maybe an ad that I don't associate with, right? Because I'm not, you know, that demographic of that person or, you know, I don't live in that area or something like that. What we think of as advertising is, is it's so outdated. Um, and it's going to be, it's being completely reinvented now. Like forget access to the audience, forget performance marketing, like what the actual ad itself is, is going through a massive transformation. And it really follows so many other trends, like content got much more personalized. You're trying to write for your audience, deliver it in the right channel. Uh, and now advertising has to be disrupted the exact same way. Yeah, I think like, you know, advertisers have been sort of stuck, you know, in the old school days of putting up different windows of like, you've got to play a little bit to, um, wherever you're putting that ad. I mean, you know the old phrase, like if it works in Omaha, it'll work everywhere else. Like that old kind of like, you, the, Omaha is the test market because it's like the, like the average demographic of everything. Like the average of all the people you're trying to reach is the complete inverse of what influencer marketing allows you to do. Influencer marketing allows you to find all of the versions of who you're trying to reach, super, co very cost affordably, integrated not only into the aesthetic, but to the lifestyle of the person. Right, so it's not just like a, like a cool streetwear streetwear person is putting an outfit of the day together. It's like they're. I lived two summers ago in New York and Soho, and I live in the corner of Howard and Mercer, where like you've got like Palace skateboards and stadium goods and Billionaire Boys Club, and it was like amazing walking outside every single day. It was like the most amazing fashion show I could ever ever imagine, and like so it's not just like. So I'm doing out for the day, but it's like out for the day put into the context of like groups of people that are like hanging out and like how they're shopping and like how they're moving around the city. We just got it all literally on our doorstep because it's like lines and lines of people lining up for sneakers. You could get a hundred versions of that with any brand. People don't really understand the power of that. And that really is crowdsourcing ironically at the end of the day, right? Like it's like, it's like life sourcing. It's like taking as many people's lives as possible and getting that value applied to your brand. Yeah, matching the long tail to the long tail is uh, that's what it 
it's back to one of our original questions. It's one of the things that, that uh, the old world crowdsourcing actually does well. So the concept of there's very few true serial entrepreneurs who are serial entrepreneurs. I think uh, most people are trying to hang up their shingle after they've started two businesses. How long does it take you once you're into one of these new businesses to decide if it's going big versus you need to go in a different direction? After you have built a lot of businesses, and that's not necessarily as a founder, you can be a significant executive, you could be an investor. Investing is a great way um, to learn a hell of a lot about what businesses will work or not work without spending a lot of your time and energy on it. So um, probably the, the smartest thing that any entrepreneur could do is probably invest in five startup companies and stay as close to them as, as the, the CEOs will let them. Um, you tend to just see patterns. You see patterns, you, you learn what you can copy, you learn where landmines are. And so you are able to come up with and throw away 99% of your ideas very unemotionally and very easily. And so by the time that I jump into something now, I'm fairly confident that it's got a high likelihood of outcome. Ideas are 1% of the effort and execution is 99%. So there's a lot of things that happen in the execution path that um, you can't predict. Uh, you know, might not be able to pull the right team together. Um, you know, there might be competitors that you didn't expect, but you know, um, you know, or, or frankly, like you just can't see around a corner because you haven't had experience in a certain kind of business. Like Trot is a great example. You know, we were very excited about the business for a long time, but we just realized that we had built this systemic problem into the business about being stuck in the middle of the marketplace. And we were too far into it and too much financing to kind of make a hard left turn and try to do something else. Um, but, you know, by and large, when I jump into something, I'm, you know, I'm pretty um, committed to it. And I also think I'm pretty good at like, um, operating with somewhat amorphous ideas in my head so I can kind of keep like digging and dagging and um, navigating around things. Um, I would say that um, probably my career is not necessarily as a serial entrepreneur, entrepreneur. it's more as a parallel entrepreneur. Um, one of the things I think that I've done is I've been able to like have a central gig and then being able to scratch some of the other itches that are interesting to me on the side. And as I've gone through my life, I've had some really amazing people that I've worked with that I've been able to pull into companies. So the blockchain company actually started as a derivative of something we wanted to do at influence.co. I ended up bringing in a CEO that as a friend of mine that I've worked with, he built another company I helped him get started that he sold to Cisco, brought him in and he's sort of taken that company and like massively transformed it. And so um, I've always ended up having like two or three things running at one time, like you said. So I've been able to accumulate like a long laundry list of, of um, companies, I think four, four I've sold now that have been started and been involved in um, by doing things in, in parallel. I think serial just takes a long time. But um, yeah, a lot of it is just pattern matching, pattern matching, pattern matching, um, and absolutely falling out of love with your ideas as fast as you can, right? It's, I definitely like think of something, get mentally engaged in it, and then try to set it aside for a week or two. And if I don't think about it anymore, I don't ever go back to it. It's the ones that like nag at you, nod at you, you find yourself up at two in the morning. Um, that are the ones that um, end up usually getting getting started. Well, well, as someone who's only running one company, who feels kind of overwhelmed by that challenge, uh, what you do on a daily basis seems like a lot. <laughs> I don't know, it's like, it's, it's funny. I, one of the things that I learned about um, having kids is <laughs> you have way more free time than you think you do. Yep. Um, I think that like, I'm so busy, like, you know, uh, sort of like classic, I'm so busy American response to how are you doing? So deeply ingrained in our culture is a complete and utter lie. <laughs> like, 
Uh, I only got one kid, right? Now, like people that have like four or five kids, I see them and I'm like, I, I, I don't know how you do anything, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, we have a ton of time and we figure out how to like spend a lot of time with her and still do all these things, so. Some of my favorite advice that I got from one of my best friends after I had my first kid, which he didn't tell me until I had the kid, which was, uh, let me reframe your life now, take everything that you love to do outside of work and then decrease that by 90% and that's what you have left. And uh, yeah. I didn't realize that until I had a kid either. Um, Neil, any other, you just talked about a lot of patterns. You've seen about as many patterns in starting a business as anyone. Any other top uh, patterns um, that come to mind that you give kind of as your foundational lessons to new entrepreneurs starting companies? There's a difference between new entrepreneurs and um, entrepreneurs that are going back to the well. Let me start with the latter one, right? Because I actually think this is, you know, I started my first company, it went well. I started another company, it was a failure. Um, and, you know, I thought a lot about why that was. And um, I read a book once called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I think it's like, just can be very simply summarized as have success despite a lot of things. But when you have success, you don't think of the despites, you think of the whys. And the hurdle you have to overcome on your next thing is the despites. And so, people forget there were despites and they jump into things and those despites when you play the game again, come back to be much deeper, you know, heavier weights around your ankles. And I think, you know, or you gloss over stuff that like you aren't that good at and someone else just did in your company, but you sort of forget that because success makes everything look like everyone's a genius, right? And so I actually think it's um, sometimes harder to start a second company. Um, uh, than it is to start a first one because of all of those um, blind spots that, you know, you might have literally just gotten out with your, by the skin of your teeth. Um, and, you know, but again, the minute you are successful, you just think you're a genius and you can do anything. Um, yeah. First time uh, think, gambler at a casino type of issues. Uh, totally. It's exactly what it is, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the beginner's luck philosophy applied to business. For first-time entrepreneurs, which still applies to anything new that you do, the single best piece of advice that I got was I was sitting in class in the morning, so I was, and I must have been awake, which was odd for me. And, and <laughs> I remember the professor said, you know, um, what's the best way to answer a question? And, you know, all these MIT kids are sitting there, you know, thinking very hard about that. And he said, just ask someone who already knows the answer. <laughs> and I was like, that is, that was worth the price of admission to the school. And I've really made that part of my life. I spent a huge amount of my time before I start a company and while I'm running a company, reaching out to as many people as possible to learn. And I think a misconception, a mythology that entrepreneurs who have not started businesses tell themselves that is a horrible thing that you have to stop telling yourself is, oh, successful people get access to all these people because they're successful. Um, I literally go on LinkedIn and cold email, you know, 10, 15 people a week still, right? And you get a 10% hit rate, 15% hit rate. And same thing on Twitter. I've kind of re resuscitated my energy on Twitter because Twitter is actually a very good way to meet interesting people. And, you know, pre-COVID, when I was, especially when I was living in New York that summer, New York has just gotten such an incredible density of amazing professionals that all are in the kind of same general area of the city. I would just say like, want to have a coffee, want to have a coffee, want to have a coffee. And I would probably have like a 10 or 15% hit rate. But that 10 or 15% hit rate, it adds up over time. But then also, if you have a good coffee, you say, who else should I meet? 
which is like the single smartest question you can ask when you talk to someone is who else should I meet? And most people are going to give you a good answer. And then if they give the answer, they're kind of on the hook to make the introduction. And, you know, I, I try to be a pretty high value person. Like I do my work, I prep, I know who they are, I know where they went to school, I, you know, scan, scour the internet. But um, I think first time entrepreneurs are very, they feel like they don't deserve to have those kinds of meetings with people. And they do. Most people that have been successful are very clued into giving their time and their energy to people that are genuinely like trying to get the answer from someone who already knows. That's the best piece of advice I can give to someone. You, I, you could literally give me a new industry. And just because I'm fearless about this, I would go and be one of the more knowledgeable people in the industry in 30 days by using the same techniques that every single other person can use. And it's called LinkedIn. For our audience, anybody who's looking to get in touch with you afterwards, how can they find you? LinkedIn would be a very easy way to do it. I'm on Twitter every single day, so you can DM me. And then uh, people can just email, email me as well. I'm, uh, my business email is nielr at influence.co. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk to anyone. Neil, thanks so much for joining me on The Verblio Show. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much, man. That's it for this episode of The Verblio Show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Steve Pockross in Denver, Colorado, signing off.